Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Turn in your Bibles, flip in your Bibles, type in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. That's where we're going to be this evening. Genesis chapter 12 is where we're going to begin. And uh, when you get there, go ahead and uh, <clears throat> turn your attention up to the screen. Here's, uh, here's what, a little thing we started with last week, and we're going to start this week with it as well. So all out loud together, let's read this. The answer to a Babylonian experience is a name and a journey of increasing enjoyment and trust in the Lord. One more time. The answer to a Babylonian experience is a name and a journey of increasing enjoyment and trust in the Lord. Uh, We started a little mini two-week series last week uh, that we're calling The Answer for Babylon. The Answer for Babylon. And what I put forth last week is that culturally we have moved from Christendom to Babylon. Uh, When I was growing up in the 90s, some of you quite a bit older than me, you remember the Jesus People movement. You remember a very different reality of the kind of Uh, religious conservative movement of the 1980s. But when I grew up, uh, Christianity was dominant. Um, Most everybody that I knew went to church. Uh, People understood, if you were to reference the Bible, there would be, people would understand what you were referring to. Um, And we've moved from that cultural dominance to a despised minority today. And what I put forth last week is that this is not a bad thing. Uh, See, the entire Bible is written for people who are having a Babylon experience. The entire Bible is written about people who are having a Babylon experience. And so last week, we, we started looking at the story of Abraham and specifically why Abraham's story comes after Babel. I think it's on, it's on purpose that right after the Tower of Babel, right after the, the foundations of Babylon, you get the story of Abraham. And specifically, I think there are two reasons why Abraham's story is the answer for Babylon. Specifically, for these reasons. The answer to the corrupt confusion of the earthly city is a family of faith, a family of people who move into the unknown with Yahweh rather than develop their own plan. This really, in a nutshell, is the story of Abraham. And this is why I think that the story of Abraham answers the problems with Babel, the problems with Babylon. Because faith reconnects you to the voice of God. Hopefully tonight, even in our worship time, it wasn't just a time to sing songs, but it was a time for your faith to increase. Uh, my, my mom, um, she has this very distinct perfume. And if we get our bait, whenever she watches our little baby Georgie, when Georgie comes back, we can tell whose house she was at because she smells like that perfume. It rubbed off on her. How do you grow in faith? You just go, I'm just gonna trust God again, even though I've been let down, even though I've been disappointed, I'm just gonna really try to trust. No. 
The way that faith increases is by getting close to the one who's faithful so that throughout the rest of your day, the rest of your week, the rest of your month and year, you have the scent of being in his presence on you. Oh yeah, that's right, he's faithful. I remember that encounter. I remember that testimony that that person told me. I remember seeing him and it's my seeing of him that increases my faith, okay? That's why faith matters so much. That's why the story of a family that God says, just pull up everything and go matters. That's an answer to Babylon. We talked a little bit about that last week. Go back and listen to it if you missed it. But also, uh, the reason why Abraham's story is an answer for Babylon is that the governmental structure of family is God's answer to the grind of the earthly city. The governmental structure of family is God's answer to the grind of the earthly city. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to look at the contrast between family and empire and why God uses family instead of empire to build his nation, to bring heaven on earth. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took, he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Mereh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. I want you to think about just the contrast that we're witnessing in the text. Humans at Babel collaborated together to try to bring the gods down to them. Let us build a tower to the heavens. Let us go to their space and convince them that we are really great and they should come down. But here in this very next story, what we see is that God comes down to a human and to a family, Abram, and he calls him to be a blessing to the nations. You notice this family language. You have offspring, you have wife, you have husband, you have nephew, specifically subverting the nation idea and going directly to the family. So here's the focus of tonight. Why? Why family? How is family the answer for Babylon? I think for three reasons. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, write this down. The, the, the first reason is this. The first reason why he goes to a family and not a nation is this. He goes to a family in order to shrink Babel. In order to shrink Babel. There's part of me that wonders if what God was doing was shrinking the authority structures of Babel down to the family unit down to just his voice and the family unit. And, and really what we're seeing in our current COVID age is just how important localized leadership actually is. Just how important it is that your leaders not be so far away that they are disconnected from what their laws produce. It seems to me that there's a correlation between the health of a society and the distance of their leadership. 
how healthy a society can be. It's almost like we've hit the limit of how healthy a society can be with how far away the leaders are who are making the rules. Um, and, and the less accountable leaders are to their people, the worse it is for the people. Would you not agree? I think um, that about this Babylon that we currently exist in in the United States and this unspoken mantra of our leaders in the past two years, rules for thee, but not for me. Mercy for my friends, but not for my enemies. This is what we're seeing going on in Canada right now. It's mercy for everybody who protests the things that I like, but not for the people who protest against me. This is empire. In this contrast with family, in a family, there is no authority without responsibility. Trust me. (laughs) All fathers and mothers know this. You only share that mantle of authority to the degree that you are entering it with a servant heart. One of the things that Jake and I, we've, we've chatted about in the past is that our job is not to be, we're not the teachers or even the leaders of our house. Here's what we are. We're to be like Jesus, to lay ourselves down for our homes. There's something very unique about family. Um, there is a profound accountability to the decisions that are made because we all have to live under this, in the same house, under the same roof. There's many times where, as a parent, when you're disciplining your child, you're off doing something very fun with that child. You're at the zoo, and they're throwing a tantrum. And if you say to them, hey, if you keep throwing this tantrum, we're going to leave the zoo, it hurts you too because you actually kind of enjoy the zoo. <laughs> this is part of... This is family. We're all in this together. And see, I think that God wants his relationships on earth to mimic his leadership from heaven. So family is his answer. There's a father. (laughs) We have a father. Secondly, I think that God picks family to use because of the governmental structure of family. In an empire, problems are solved by moving people around like cogs in a machine. We have a problem. Let's just re-scramble the people. We need these people to think this. We need to manipulate these people to believe that. How about we just move those people here and we make a line there. You can't do this. You can't do that. But in a family, each person, no matter how little they are, and people with infants, you really know this, each person must be honored and given attention. So, so there's, there's a debate between East and West. It's kind of generalizing, but largely this is the debate. What produces a good society? Radical individualism, this is what the West says, or collectivism, this is what the East says. And there's been a debate, and there's people in the United States that go, I think we need a little bit more collectivism. And there's people who go, no, 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 radical individualism. And God's like, family's different than both of those. It's not purely collective, and it's not purely radical individual. Every individual must be honored as we consider where the family is going. The story of Abraham is about a family figuring out how to do family. Like, like the, the first story right after this is uh, of, about Abraham giving his wife Sarah to Pharaoh. What is the lesson of that story? You're like, that's a bad story. <laughs> What's the lesson of that story? Don't you dare let empire violate the covenant of family. What about the story of Lot? He's got herds. Abraham has herds. They're not working together. What, what about that? What about that story? Here's, here's the story. Honor even if you have potentially been wronged. No, you pick the land first, Lot. What is the story of Hagar? 
and Ishmael. The next story. This is like one after the other. What's that story? Families should trust God together for his promises, even when it doesn't make sense, rather than trying to obtain God's promises on their own or out of their own effort. It's family. Probably the biggest difference between a nation and a family is how they define success. That's probably the biggest difference. In a healthy family, notice the word healthy there, you're like, that wasn't like my family, but in a healthy family, relational health is placed before accomplishment. It's placed before progress. Um, And this is really the story of Mary Poppins. Um, It it really is. My my wife and I, we've been watching um, Mary Poppins recently with our little girl, um, and just hearing her say, Poppins, is like reward enough. She probably doesn't follow most of it. But I, have, I had never watched Mary Poppins all the way through. I'd never watched it all the way through. I'd just seen like the beginning of it and thought, this is boring. Uh, but my wife pointed this out to me that at the very end of the movie, there's a character named Bert. He's the chimney sweep. And he has this conversation with this internally torn, wealthy man named George Banks, whose children were being watched by Mary Poppins. And, and here's what he says. He says this. You're a man, this is what Bert says to George Banks. He says, you're a man of high position, esteemed by your peers. And when your little tykes are crying, you haven't the time to dry their ears and see their thankful little faces smiling up at you because their dad, he always knows just what to do. And, And George Banks goes, you know, stammers, well, I, and Bert cuts in and he says, say no more, governor. You've got to grind, grind, grind at that grindstone. Though childhood slips like sand through a sieve, and all too soon they've up and grown, and then they've flown, and it's too late for you to give. You've got to grind, grind, grind. And if you know the story, that this dazed George Banks quits his job the next, uh, you know, the next scene, he quits his job at the bank, Following this conversation, he mends his kid's kite and joy hits him. Let's go fly the kite. All at once, he's lighter than air because that's what parents are designed to do. They're designed to put family before grind, grind, grind at that grindstone, produce more at the bank. See, God honors the family because parents place relationship with their children above production in a healthy family. While throughout the ages, governments have shown that they are happy to sacrifice their children for the sake of their empire. One of those reflects God and his rule and the other does not, which leads to the third reason why the kingdom of God looks like family and why God chooses Abraham's family as a critique, a different option to Babel, and that's that the family is supposed to be a family of rest. One of the common refrains within the New Testament is that the people of God are to be a people of rest. This is all throughout the book of Hebrews. Um, And in the first of the 10 commandments, the very first commandment is this, you will have no other gods before me. And we read that and we're like, yeah, that's cool, we're monotheists, it's all good. But to them, there was a whole array of other gods that they could have picked from. Here's what Walter Brueggemann says in his book, uh, The Sabbath as Resistance. He says this, 
what they all, Canaanite gods, have in common is that they are confiscatory gods who demand endless produce and who authorize endless systems of production that are, in principle, insatiable. Why is he saying, turn away from those other gods? Because the other gods demand that you work, work, work. You grind, grind, grind at that grindstone. What was the mantra of Egypt? More bricks, less straw. What was the mantra of Babel? We're going to build, build, build so that we can get a name. You have to grind, grind, grind at that grindstone. And see, the other, the other gods, the Canaanite gods, turned humans into commodity producers in Babel. They turned them into commodity producers in Egypt, produce and sweat. And this is in direct contrast to Yahweh. Yahweh is not a workaholic. In fact, he picks a day in, within creation in Genesis chapter 2 to rest. It means something. It means that Yahweh is not anxious about the full functioning of creation. He's not anxious about it, so you don't need to be anxious either. He also believes that the well-being of creation does not depend on you or on your work. This is one of the messages of the Old Covenant. How will the family of God be a blessing? By being a family of rest. By being a family who can rest. See, see my future and, and, and my well-being is actually not as much in my hands or control as I think that it is. As, a, as be, a person who's a part of the covenant family of God, my future and my well-being are actually dependent upon my relationship with Yahweh and what he choose. What is it? I'm gonna bless you so that you'll be a blessing. Do you believe it? And this is so powerful, this inviting of people into rest. In, in the very first uh, Rocky movie, Rocky Balboa is asked, why do you train so hard? What is it that makes you train as hard as you do? And he says this, I have to prove that I'm not a bum. I've got to prove I'm not a bum. Every single human has an internal need to prove that their lives are worth something. That's why when a bunch of humans got together with one language, they produced Babel to get a name. This is the problem of Babel, right? Working for an identity, trying to prove we're actually not bums. We're really worth it. It is the ancient struggle, and God's solution is belonging to a family, a family of rest, because your participation in the family is not dependent upon what you produce. That's good news. That's why he picks family. And here's really where I want to land tonight and spend a little bit of time. Why is family the solution to Babylon? Because family honors people beyond what they can be used for. There's a level of honor here. It, it, family, when, when there's honor for each member of the family, that, that family becomes the context for you to discover who you are, for you to, to, to find a place that you belong, for you to actually receive blessing, because that's how God intended to, to use people was in family. And the New Testament is constantly putting us into this family context and encouraging a very specific tone to exist in our church, and that's the tone of family honor. Family honor. Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly. Look at the metaphor he uses. But exhort him as if he were your father. Why didn't he say business partner? Why didn't he say president? Or, or manager, family. Treat younger men as what? Brothers. Older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. 
Do you see we're constantly being pushed into this? The model for church is family. It's supposed to look like family, not empire, not business. It's supposed to look like family. Paul then says this to the Thessalonians, another church in the first century. He says, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. How did they deal with, when, the, when Paul was there, how did he deal with them? Encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. There are fathers and mothers in the church. That's a good thing. And the language that fathers and mothers are to use to people who are in the church is encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live a life that's worthy of the gospel, to live a life worthy of God. Does that sound like another passage that we quote all the time around here? 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2. What is it? Prophecy strengthens, encourages, and comforts. If you are over the age of 25, you're a father and a mo- or a mother in this church. <laughs> Okay, just by the nature of the demographics. So, so here, here's what I want to encourage you with. May your language to everyone in this church be strengthening, encouraging, and comforting. May you have a prophetic presence in this church, constantly drawing people to their destiny, reminding people of who they are in Christ, encouraging, strengthening, and comforting. This is what mothers and fathers do. What he's saying is this, the church is like a family, and families work best when there's honor. I would actually say that honor promotes the movement of God. It's many people who wonder, how does a revival happen? And how, does a, how is a revival sustained? It's like prayer meetings. Is it signs and wonders? Okay, all of that will be included. How it's really sustained is through honor. Through the honoring of one another. So often I, f- I see the, the movement of God disrupted by pride. And, and pride almost always manifests as dishonor for other people. And in fact, I have found in church, and maybe some of you who have been around church a while will find this as well, I've found that dishonor sometimes is the result of people longing for the movement of God. I've encountered many who are excited for revival, they're excited for the movement of God, but who constantly feel like someone else is holding the community back from what God wants. If that person could just stop doing what they're doing, stop emphasizing what they're emphasizing, if they could just change, then God would really move here. So dishonor comes in when empire thinking comes in. This cog needs to be moved for what we want to have happen, happen. It's empire thinking. But honor says this, I will choose to see you how God sees you, and I won't resort to controlling you to get what I want, even if what I want is a good thing. That's all honor. So here's my call to us as a church. Next slide. We become the answer to a Babylon world when the church is a family full of honor. You want to see, see our town wake up to its Babylon existence and what is on offer? We have to display what is on offer by becoming a family of honor. And I think this is going to mean three different things all happening at the same time here at Saints Hill. The first is this. I notice the gift that you are. Do you notice the gift that somebody, the person sitting next to you actually is? How do you view the people that you're sitting around right now? Do you view them as a gift? Or do you see them as somebody who might be able to get you something that you want? A means to an end. Uh, As a a young pastor at the church that I used to work at, I remember I would have people come up after the gathering, I I would be chatting with them, and particularly with young people, 
they would constantly be looking past me. So we'd be like in a conversation and they'd be like, oh yeah, cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Oh, sure. Uh-huh. Oh, super dope. Nice. And they'd always be like looking around like, who else is here? Is that girl that I like here? Is that guy who's really cool here? I really hope that I can meet that person. They're really cool. And it's like, what are we doing? Like, that's dishonor. That's a dishonor. If our method is our message, the message is, I'm, I'm looking for people to climb on. Who can I climb to get what I want? It's empire thinking. Now, maybe that's just useful insecurity, but either way, a lack of honor just shrivels individuals until you never see the best of people because their best was never noticed or valued. And this just shouldn't be the case in Jesus' church. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I want people around our town saying, oh yeah, right now they're like, oh yeah, I know St. Hill. They're a little wacky. Here's what I want people saying. Oh, I know St. Hill. I've heard of that church. Yeah, they've got a bit of a competition going on right now just trying to outdo one another in showing honor. It's friendly competition. <laughs> Danny Silk, he says this in his book, Culture of Honor. He says, accurately acknowledging who people are will position us to give them what they deserve and to receive the gift of who they are in our lives. Accurately acknowledging who someone is. Paul says, we don't know anybody according to the flesh. We now know them according to the spirit. Do you only know the people around you according to what your experience with them has been? Or do you know what God thinks about them as well? This isn't just like a, a fun idea that the New Testament authors had and this guy named Danny Silk had. This is actually something that Jesus had, believed as well. He said this, whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. I think that people carry a reward with them. And when they are honored, you actually set yourself up to receive what they carry. And you, when you accurately see somebody for who they are, what God says about them, you have now positioned yourself in relationship in a place of humility to receive who that person actually is, the gift that they are. So what is the person next to you carrying? What kind of gift could they be if you weren't looking past them, but you were honoring them? You were asking the Lord, what do you think about this person See, sometimes we don't really know the people around us because we've yet to ask God what he thinks about them. So the first step in family, and in our family, Saints Hill, uh, is God, show me how you see this person, and I'm just gonna agree with what you say about them. I'm not asking you why, I'm not bringing up, I'm not accusing them before you, I'm just saying, show me how you see them, and I'm gonna come into agreement with how you see them. Secondly, the second piece of honor I think we need to have going on in this church is humility. I could be the one that made that mess. I think we need to be aware enough to see that any mess someone else makes could have been made by us. Do you believe that? <laughs> Jesus said this. He said, to the degree that you judge, you will be judged. Isn't that a weird saying? It's like, well, I thought that you were going to judge me, so how about you just have a standard of judgment, let me know what it is, I'll live by it. Why bring me into it at all? Why are you saying, to the degree that I judge, I will be judged? Why is it to that degree? Well, it's because it's a natural rule that your judgment on others 
I would never say that. <laughs> I would never wear that. I cannot believe they just did that. Your judgment on others actually has the reverse result, and it puts you in the chains that you thought you were placing on them. You thought you were placing chains on them through your judgment, but you found they were actually your chains. And the lie of self-righteousness is this, is that your chains are actually symbols of your virtue. And so you stay in the trap. This is how churches are destroyed every year. I can't believe they said that. Can you believe that? They're wearing their mask still. They're not wearing their mask. And this malignant creep of self-righteousness spreads its way through the body. And here's the remedy. Here's the remedy. When we stand in God's righteousness, we see that we didn't accomplish anything to earn it. So if it was given to you, it could be given to them. So honor the other person by aligning your thoughts with God's hope for them. I forgot thoughts. Sorry, Em. There's a running like list. If you've been around for a while, you're like, Em's the stickler on my slides. I'm going to hear about that one later. Okay, lastly, last thing that we need to have going on in our church is this. I honor myself and others by being honest and confronting the person who offended me. We can almost just stop right there. Confront the person who offended you. Stop. That's just full stop, okay? Do you know how many problems in churches would be solved and how quickly they would be solved if people simply confronted the person who offended them rather than talking to everybody else who has nothing to do with the problem about it? It's like, <laughs> I won't even do it anymore. I'm like, have you, just, have you talked to them? I think you should talk to them. See, um, we actually reveal our honor relationally for someone when we confront them. We say, I'm taking you seriously enough to take your sin seriously enough that I'd actually talk with you about it. It's honor. It's honor. We show that we believe that that person is royal enough to deserve my concern and my time in the conversation with them by confronting them. And I think there's really three things that we need to think through when we're confronting uh, somebody. We need to ask ourselves this question, do I have the right to confront this person? Oftentimes I find that people confront people that they don't really have a right confronting. They heard about the problem and then they're jumping in to confront somebody about that problem when the person who was offended should have just confronted the person about it. People need to know that you care about them before they care what you know about them. It's very difficult to listen to somebody that you can't trust. And so I have a little bit of a filter for you. If you're taking notes, write this down. Has the person that you're offended by invited your critique? Have they said, I want you to help me be more like Jesus? In the church, this is most of us, right? Most of the people that we're friends with here, yeah, they probably have actually invited you to help make them more like Jesus on this life journey that you're on. Another question, do you have relational equity built up that can handle the difficult conversation? Do you have enough history with this person that you can actually have that difficult conversation and it's gonna go well? And the last question is this. Maybe this should be the first question. Is this somebody else's problem? Is this actually something that you need to encourage your friend to confront that person about? Hey, you know, you've, we've, we've been talking about this for like the past, oh, I don't know, three months. I think you should just go and talk to them. I know it's gonna be hard, but honor them. Go and talk to them. Secondly, ask yourself this question. Am I calling out their destiny or am I trying to control them? 
Am I calling out somebody's destiny in confrontation, or do I just want to control them and make them more like me? See, confrontation for believers is about winning somebody over in love. So all confrontation at its core is prophetic. This is who I know you are, because I ask God what he thinks about you. This is who I know you to be. But when you treated me this way, it felt like less than that. And I was hurt by that. So I'm holding you to the standard of how God sees you. It's prophetic. So what's your motive when you're confronting somebody? When you confront someone, you need to ask, why am I confronting them? Am I trying to make my life easier or trying to make them more like me? Or is this about their destiny as a son or as a daughter? Lastly, when we confront, we need to ask ourselves this question. Am I willing to stay in relationship through the process? We don't do confrontation if we're unwilling to stay in relationship through the process. There are times where I've been frustrated with somebody, I've been hurt by somebody, and God has asked me, okay, you have two options here. You can either forgive them, and, and you know, but you don't have to build any more trust with them, but you can forgive them, and that's that, or you need to confront them and you need to bring it up. You've got two options. Are you gonna forgive them and then let it go and not bring it up again, or do you need to actually have the conversation that's gonna be the healing solve for that issue? This is how we build a culture of honor. We treat people according to how God sees them to be. We live with a humility that I could have made that mess as well. And the righteousness that God gave to me, he's given to them. And then we confront for the sake of somebody's destiny, not our own personal comfort. And I believe that when we do these things, we will become the family of rest that the world, weary from the rule of empire, longs to see. To end on just a slight pastoral note, recently God has been just developing uh, in me Um, Just a huge heart of gratitude for many of you in the church uh, who I get to interact with. I I mean this, and my wife and I, we've chatted about this, and this is no offense to previous churches that we've been a part of, but I've never been around so many hungry people with genuine passion for God. Um, It's really staggering. You know, um, I've been asked by other pastors, where are you fed, brother? And I'm like, well, brother... um, (laughs) Where I'm fed is I'm fed in my own, in this church. I'm fed by you guys. I'm so, so fed by you. Um, I just had a, a meeting with um, Chad Stillinger and Justin Adsit, and I just left on cloud nine. Because they're just, they're guys who go to the church, and they're guys who just are so passionate about following Jesus, as many of you guys know them. And I'm just like, man, I was filled up. Before I, did, before I even got to the church gathering, I was getting filled up by them. And so, I just, I live with a level of encouragement. I live with a level of hope and joy because of you. And I just want to say I really, really enjoy, I'm really enjoying um, this church. It's contagious. And I feel like the Lord has just been said, saying to me, like, Alex, these are the days that you've been praying for. Like, you're living in my promise. And, and so I want to ask you, like, what if God providentially placed you in this time, in this space with these people? What if you saw people that way? God has providentially placed these people into my sphere and into, my, uh, into this time. Nobody else in, in history gets to live where I'm living and in the time I'm living in with the people that I'm living in. What a joy it is to enjoy relationship as we follow Yahweh together, just like Abraham and Sarah. I think now more than ever, it is time to honor people by enjoying the unique people we have to our right and to our left in this family, and that is the answer for Babylon. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, 
You can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.